Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do great work. And you can visit the website and give them a call, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. We'll visit with Phil Kirpin, the president of American Commitment, who's filed an uh, amicus brief with the Supreme Court about vaccine mandates. Cole Lyle is the uh, executive director of Mission Roll Call, very interesting organization. We'll be talking about veteran suicide, especially here in Florida. And Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture, and author of many books, I think 10 actually is the final, is the last count. His latest, he wrote with Buzz Aldrin, it's called Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. It is February the 18th, and on this day in 1885, Mark Twain published his famous and now famously controversial novel, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. His pen name, of course, is Samuel Clemens. He first introduced Huck Finn as the best friend of Tom Sawyer, hero of his tremendously successful novel, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer which uh, he was published in 1876. Though Twain saw Huck's story as a kind of sequel to his earlier book, the new novel was different, perhaps more serious, focusing on the institution of slavery and other aspects of life in the antebellum South. As the book's heart is a, the journey of Huck and his friend Jim, a runaway enslaved person down the Mississippi River on a raft, Jim runs away because he's about to be sold and separated from his wife and children, and Huck goes with him to help him get to Ohio and to freedom. Huck narrates the story in his distinctive voice, offering colorful descriptions of the people and places they encounter along the way. The most striking part of the book is that his hysterical look at racism, religion, and other social attitudes of the time. While Jim is strong, brave, generous, and wise, many of the white characters are portrayed as violent, stupid, or simply selfish, and the naive Huck ends up questioning the hypocritical and unjust nature of society in general, largely reflecting the attitudes of Mark Twain. Even in 1885, two decades after the Emancipation Proclamation and the end of the Civil War, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn landed with a splash. A month after its publication, a Concord, Massachusetts library banned the book, calling its subject matter tawdry and its narrative voice coarse and ignorant. Other libraries followed suit, beginning a controversy that continued long after Mark Twain's death in 1910. In the 1950s, the book came under fire from an African-American group, for being racist in its portrayal of black characters, despite the fact that it had been seen by many as a strong criticism of racism, racism and slavery. As recently as 1998, an Arizona parent sued the school district, claiming uh, it, that making Mark Twain's novel required high school reading made already existing racial tensions even worse. Aside from its controversial nature and its continuing popularity with young readers, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn has been hailed by many serious literary critics as a masterpiece. No less a judge than Ernest Hemingway famously declared the book uh, marked the beginning of American literature. This was nothing, there was nothing before and there's nothing been as good since, said uh, Ernest Hemingway. 
great novel. I just read it uh, a couple years ago, again, probably for the fifth or sixth time. It's great reading. I highly recommend it. And of course, uh, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, a great author. Well, the United States Congress on Thursday gave final approval of legislation funding the government through March the 11th, avoiding the embarrassing spectacle of federal agencies having to shut many of their operations amid the uh, Russia-Ukraine crisis. Boy, it makes me smile when I say that. The Senate acted at midnight uh, Friday uh, at the DASA deadline loomed. Uh, when existing funds were set to expire for operating most of the federal government, the temporary funding bill passed it by a bipartisan vote, uh, 65 to 27. It now goes on to President Biden for his signing into law. So that uh, crisis averted for the time being. It's called kicking the can down the road. Well, there's no war yet in Ukraine, although a Russian-aligned group apparently fired on a preschool. But uh, anyhow, uh, there's no war in Ukraine yet. Now, this is a serious consideration and concern because <laughs> what's President Biden going to talk to talk about in the State of the Union address if he doesn't solve the Ukraine-Russia crisis? And, of course, uh, another Trudeau, although Trudeau is uh, turning Canada into a dictatorship over peaceful trucker freedom protest, uh, that story continues as well. Well, Hillary Clinton claims she's innocent of spying on President Trump and uses total projection to say the more he mis his misdeeds are exposed, the more they lie. She actually said that with a straight face. Documents filmed by Durham, filed by Do Durham, that's John Durham, who's a special counsel, was appointed a special counsel by then Attorney General William Barr in May of 2019. It's ignited a firestorm of criticism against the Clinton campaign. It led to calls for a closer look at the FBI's handling of the Russia probe, which is codenamed Crossfire Hurricane. Trump himself, who described the accusations as bigger than Watergate, called on Justice Department Tuesday to declassify and release all of the remaining documents related to the claims that his campaign colluded with Russia. They have the declassification order, and they should declassify absolutely, especially in the light of what has just happened and what has been revealed, he said. Hillary responded today with a tweet publishing, uh, pushing a story that, in Vanity Fair, anyone who trusts Hillary at this point is a fool, I believe. Most Democrats know that. In fact, uh, most Democrats think she should be, or I should say, a, a, a large plurality of Democrats believe she should be brought to justice. Be interesting to see if uh, Biden allows the special counsel to continue. My bet is he's going to try. He's going to try and stop it. We'll see. Well, Republicans in the Florida House of Representatives early Thursday approved a ban on abortions after 15 weeks, moving to tighten access to procedure ahead of a U.S. Supreme Court decision that could limit abortion rights in America. The GOP-controlled House passed the 15-week abortion ban after several hours of debate between Democrats who said the measure would impose an unnecessary burden on women and Republicans who said they were protecting the unborn. This is the right to life and give up life is unconscionable to me, said Representative Dana Tobolsky, Tobolsky, who disclosed that she'd previously had an abortion but had regretted it ever since, every day since, she said. Republicans in several state legislatures are moving to uh, place new restrictions on abortions after the U.S. Supreme Court signaled it would uphold a Mississippi law prohibiting abortion after 15 weeks and potentially overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade decision. 
A decision in that case is expected later this year. GOP lawmakers in Arizona, West Virginia this week advanced their own 15-week abortion bans, and Republicans in other states are modeling legislation after a law in Texas which effectively banned abortions after six weeks. Florida, uh, Florida's bill contains exceptions if the abortion is necessary to save a mother's life, prevent serious injury to the mother, or if the fetus has a fatal abnormality. The state currently allows abortions up to 24 weeks of pregnancy. Republicans have repeatedly rejected attempts from Democrats to add additional exceptions to the bill for pregnancies caused by rape, incest, or human trafficking. Near the end of the House debate, a group of activists in the House gallery broke out with a chant, My Body, My Choice, not addressing the fact that, of course, at some point, abortion is murder. The key is to identify what that point is. Forcing the chamber to pause before lawmakers cast their votes. Back to that, though, I, you know, I'm becoming more and more convinced that uh, life begins at ex- and at inception. Uh, it's moving as we, of course, develop more and more science that pro- that uh, supports the fact that earlier and earlier in the whole gestation period, uh, babies begin to experience life. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican, has previously signaled his support for the proposal. The bill now moves to the Republican-controlled Senate, which I believe it'll pass there as well. Also, Governor DeSantis on Tuesday suggested that a workers' bill of rights may be necessary to alleviate workers from mass mandates continually imposed upon them by their employers. Speaking on Florida's record-breaking domestic tourism numbers during a press conference in Fort Walton Beach, Uh, DeSantis talked about the restaurant industry in the state and the uphill battle the industry has faced throughout the Chinese coronavirus pandemic. Many restaurants in other states went out of business due to extended lockdowns and restrictions. The governor said, noting that you have to have a shot record to be able to even sit down in some of these places. It's totally bizarre. Here in Florida, they've been able to do very well. And I think actually a lot of restaurants have never done better than they've seen over the last year or so, he said. However, he said some of the resorts and restaurants are still forcing their employees to wear a mask, which he totally disagrees with. As an example, the governor explained he would be speaking at a dinner with 500 people in attendance, none of whom were wearing masks, but he noticed that the members of the wait staff were forced to wear a mask covering while serving those in attendance. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, why are we doing this? Why, does, why do they do that? If they want to do that for themselves, that's fine. I think people should have the freedom, but in cases that they're being forced to do it, it is uh, by the properties. And so I'd hate to say, but maybe we need to have a worker's bill of rights on some of this stuff just to let people breathe freely when they're working. I couldn't agree more, uh, Mr. Governor. I think this is a, that's a great idea. I, too, when I'm seeing wake staff with masks on, I know that they're inhibiting their own health at the expense of just creating a good imp- impression for those that are dining and... Uh, I'd like to. I like that a worker bill of rights. I think it's a good idea. Well, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky told lawmakers there are no plans to change the federal guidelines requiring students to wear masks in schools. The CDC provides guidance, she said during a brief House Energy and Commerce Committee meeting. The guidance currently is that masking should happen in all schools right now. Absurd. There's no science for that. Lawmakers on both parties criticized the CDC's mask guidance. Walensky was challenged to explain why federal guidelines appear to be out of step with the latest science. Representative Kathy McMorris, 
Rogers from uh, Washington, the ranking Republican on the committee, observed that a major study from Arizona used by the CDC to support school mask mandates is seriously flawed and pressed Walensky to change the federal guidelines to be more in line with uh, science and the international community. What we see in the U.S. is an outlier as it relates to mask mandates for children to go to school. She said the World Health Organization and UNICEF have both recommended against masking for kids under the age of five because it's going to do them more harm than good. And for children ages six to 11, they think they should be considering other factors such as learning and social impairment and development. My question today, my question is, Dr. Walensky, will you commit to update your guidance by Friday to allow children in person without the burdens of masks? Walensky did not comment and change it to changing the CD's sees guidelines by Friday, even though she acknowledged that the Arizona study had, quote-unquote, limitations. They all have limitations, and that's the important uh, to recognize that we are not randomizing schools. She said we have to control whether there are windows, ventilation, and other activities happening outside these schools. So all of these studies have limitations, but they're, for the most part, and uniformly pointing to when there's a lot of disease out there, the mass of preventing that disease and preventing the transmission, and because of that, we are able to keep schools open. Another lawmaker, uh, Gary Palmer from Alabama, rep- demanded that Walensky explain how the school masking uh, guidelines are justified. Explain why we need to keep th- allowing school districts to impose a mask mandate on kids, he said. She said that the defended the agency's current guidance and noted that schools are free to disregard the CDC's recommendations. Well, that's where I take issue with this. Unfortunately, most institutions say, well, the CDC's guidance is golden. Uh, we follow it. And they say that with kind of a <laughs> kind of a, a sneer. And it's unfortunate because there's not just recommendations. People actually follow these things. And it's stupid for kids to have to wear masks in schools. Uh, things have been so politicized right now. It's just very unfortunate. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Here on the Bob Hartman Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time.
Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. Everyone, every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. Want to find out more? Visit CollierSeniorCenter.org. That's CollierSeniorCenter.org. Or call the Collier Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252 252- 4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform. And you can download the app and find out more by visiting the website Choice Social. Dot US. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Phil Kirpin, the president of American Commitment. Right now we have with us William Yateman, a research fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure. Tell us about the Cato Institute. You bet. We're a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to advancing the ideals of a free society at every level of government. Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. I hope you check it out. So uh, things are happening, and it looks like the Democrats are pivoting away from more increasing taxes to lowering taxes. Maybe you could tell us about it. This is remarkable and unexpected. Um, on Monday, Schumer announced, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that, yeah, the, the Senate Democrats were going to be laser-focused on inflation. Um, and to that end, they've introduced a, a number of tax-cutting bills, uh, specifically one that would suspend the state sales tax. Um, you know, I'm not quite sure. I'd have to look into that, but I'm not quite sure about the constitutionality of such a measure. Um, and another to uh, suspend the gas tax, which I guess I'm all for. Um, but this is just remarkable. I mean, you know, we've been talking for months about just the outset uh, of, of raising taxes and uh, spending. Mm. Um, and I think this really goes to show you two things. Um, one is the political power of inflation today. I mean, something made the Democrats do a hundred, you know, a 180 degree pivot. And presumably it's because their internal polling dictated that Americans are very much concerned about, um, you know, the, the influence of government spending on inflation. Um, and the other one, I guess, would be this surely puts the nail in the coffin of the Build Back Better Act and any major spending measure um, that, again, the, the Democrats have been deliberating on. That they've been telling us it's an absolute priority for months on end. So um, I thought that was an incredible development. Yeah, I mean, to me, I mean, it's just ironic and so interesting to see how so little is dependent upon uh, policy and it's all politics at this point, isn't it? Looking towards the 2022 election. To be sure, I mean, that can be the only explanation is that they've got their thumb to the wind. And yes, it is dizzying 
I mean, this messaging is antithetical to what they've been doing for months. And indeed, Senator Joe Manchin, who, who has been the fly in the ointment of you know the Democrats' grand plans, the progressive plans, um, you know, he's been denigrated for for saying, hey, for for being uh, foremost concerned about inflation. So. Um, it really does go to show you that that there there are no principles necessarily here, and and, and I shouldn't uh, bemoan that too much. Like we do have a representative democracy, and and lawmakers are supposed to respond to the people. But I do think that that is indicative that the Democrats in the first year of the 117th Congress grossly misread the public's mood. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, I think it's too little, too late, in my opinion. But we'll see. I mean, the, the voters will determine that, and uh, the Senate. Pass the spell, I guess, uh, kicking the can down the road. Indeed, yeah. So uh, as we predicted last week, another stopgap measure. Uh, the government was supposed to run out of funds uh, this evening at midnight. Um, but uh, last night, the Senate passed a, a three-week spending bill that, in essence, you know, as you said, kicks the can down the road and gives lawmakers um, you know, another 21 days to try to hammer out a long-term spending agreement. Um, I'll note two things here. The first is that the kicking the can down the road, actually, I've noted this before, is beneficial to Republicans because the, the, the starting place for this can was the Trump administration, so all these spending priorities are in line with Republican priorities. Um, another thing I'll note is, and again, I've been harping on this as well every Friday, the, the, our national debt just passed 30 times. Um, which is a very scary number, and you're not really seeing the uh, 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 cognizance of just how scary that number is uh, in in the midst of these long negotiations for a long-term spending plan. So, you know, of course, the alas, that's been the case for a long time, but notwithstanding, notwithstanding, sort of the passing that marker, it doesn't seem to have dawned on lawmakers yet that we're perhaps in trouble. Uh, absolutely. So, I, I do want to get your comments on the Durham investigation. Hillary Clinton today is here. We go again. They're attacking me. <laughs> <laughs> the more they, the more that they do to, to uh, uh, that's harmful. The more they accuse me. She's the victim, of course. So what are your thoughts? Well, this is curious. So that it was a uh, Durham during the Durham uh, investor. He filed a motion, I guess, a week ago, in which he said that uh, Michael Sussman, <clears throat> the, you know, he's a lawyer has been charged, a lawyer with links to the Clinton campaign has been charged by the FBI. Um, or, uh, that he had a client who, quote, exploited his, his uh, disarrangement, uh, exploited his uh, uh, access to the White House Internet servers, um, and, and there was nothing more said. And then that evidently Sussman uh, gave used this data that was, was gathered through the exploiting <laughs> of this gentleman's, this tech executive's uh, access to White House servers. Um, Sussman gave this to the CIA. Well, there was nothing more, there was no more information in the filing. Um, now, a number of commentators, including lawmakers, have taken the filing to mean as evidence of uh, uh, spying on the Trump campaign. Evidently, the, the gentleman's tech executive one only had access to White House servers during the Obama campaign, which leads me to believe, and this is, has yet to be spelled out, that if there were shenanigans, and, and look, the language that Durham used does suggest that, that there was something amiss here, um, that it, it was in essence, it occurred during the Trump transition hmm. um, when you know his administration, his incoming administration would have had all sorts of access to the White House 
as they try to, you know, they, they put basically the greasing of the wheels between administrations. This is the process that's set forth by statute. So that was a long-winded way of saying it's unclear exactly what Durham has uncovered. Um, but uh, reading between the lines, it does appear as though something untoward took place and, and during the, the period between um, President Trump's election and when he actually took office. Do you think uh, Biden will shut down Durham's investigation? Oh, I can't imagine he would. I mean, there's no reason he would. Uh, he, there was no reason he would incur such bad politics. I mean, you know, it, even if uh, let me put it this way: if he, if he shuts it down, then that's in essence that it's very possible that the public would read that as a concession of there was, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Right. Um. So, pardon. What were you saying? I said uh, I think you're right. Yeah. So. I, I just out of, out of curiosity, it seems to me if this thing gets too hot, that might be his only his only maneuver at this point. So we'll see how this all turns because I think he's going to be implicated myself. We'll see. William Yeatman, again, research fellow at the Cato Institute. I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show, William. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Phil Kirpin. He is the president of American Commitment. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining to choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. You have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The confident retirement approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, building a 44,000-square-foot performing arts center in downtown Naples. 
and bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. Hope you'll check it out and visit the website. Get some tickets, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Cole Lyle from Mission Roll Call. Right now we have with us Phil Kirpin. He's the president of American Commitment. Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, great to be with you. Thank you, Phil. Tell us about Amer- uh, American Commitment. Well, we're a national free market advocacy group. We work really on all of the fiscal, economic, and regulatory issues, and we try to focus on the fights uh, that are on the margin, where a little bit more citizen engagement and involvement can make the difference and, and tip some of these fights in a more free market direction. And all our stuff is on the website, AmericanCommitment.org. AmericanCommitment.org. Great organization, and I encourage you to visit out uh, visit the website. So, uh, Phil, you filed an amicus brief uh, with the Supreme Court about the vaccine uh, mandates uh, required right now by the federal government. I thought uh, it'd be great to get an update on what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we filed a brief. <coughs> excuse me. We filed a brief that was a little bit different from what most of the other people did in the big mandate cases. In that, uh, we really focused on the science. Uh, there are a lot of. <coughs> excuse me. Uh, there are a lot of very strong legal arguments, obviously, against all these mandates, regardless of you know what the vaccines do or don't do. But we really wanted to inform the court on how much the factual ground had shifted between when this debate started and the mandates were issued and where we are now. And so the brief that we put in really made three major points, and we partnered with uh, two very good epidemiologists on this, so it had, we made sure we got the science right and all the facts and the data and so forth. Uh, made three main points, Bob. One is that Omicron had substantially replaced all of the other variants and was you know, near 95 or 100 percent of all of COVID. Uh, and that has major implications, two major implications that we outlined in the brief. Number one, um, it means that COVID is no longer any kind of extraordinary risk or emergency or in the language of the OSHA statute, a grave danger because uh, Omicron is about 90 percent less deadly than the prior strains. Uh, COVID was about 10 times deadlier than other respiratory viruses to start with. So if you multiply by 10 and divide by 10, you're in the same order of magnitude now with Omicron as any other normal respiratory infection that we've dealt with our whole life and we've never shut down the world for or ordered people to take injections or anything else. And so that was the first point. The second, uh, which is perhaps even more significant, is that with Omicron, the vaccines have no transmission benefit at all. They do not make you any less likely to catch the virus or to transmit it, Uh, they may well reduce the severity of symptoms, but that is a personal health benefit. And Mm -hmm. as Scalia argued famously in the Obamacare case, the government shouldn't be able to order you to do something just for a personal benefit, like eating broccoli or exercising or whatever. And so in the logic of uh, the mandates, you know, there's there's no more you're doing it. We're ordering you to do this for the protection of others, for a societal benefit, for infection reduction. Uh, because with Omicron, that, that doesn't happen. And we quoted, you know, the vaccine manufacturers themselves saying that it doesn't reduce infection anymore and stats from four or five different countries all showing that. Uh, so that's what, we, that's what we filed. Here's the update on where we are. Uh, there, are th- there are five different Biden vaccine mandates. Three of them are stopped right now. Two of them are in effect. The three that are stopped are the OSHA mandate, which was the one for all employers with 100 or more employees. Uh, that was stopped by the Supreme Court mm. and actually withdrawn by OSHA. So that one is very stopped. Uh, there are two that are at least temporarily stopped. Those are the ones for federal contractors and federal civilian employees. Those have been stopped uh, with national stays by judges uh, in Georgia and Texas, respectively. So those three are stopped. 
The two that are in effect are the one for healthcare workers, the CMS one for healthcare workers, which uh, the Supreme Court very disappointingly, uh, Kavanaugh and uh, Roberts both went with the liberals and they allowed that one, and the one for military uh, is also in effect. Uh, they, there have been some court victories against the military requiring them to accept religious exemptions, uh, but they've been sporadic and pretty limited in scope, and uh, the military is starting to discharge people. So that one is, is kind of hitting full force right now. Uh, your state, I think, has the smartest approach to protecting healthcare workers from that CMS mandate that, that other states would be wise to copy, and that is in Florida, there's a simple one-page form you can print out from the, from the Florida Department of Health uh, that just says, I have a strong religious or moral objection to the vaccine, and uh, you, you sign your name, and it's got the code section written right on there, and it says all employers are required by Florida law to accept this with no further questions. Uh, and so even though the CMS mandate is in effect nationally, if you're in the state of Florida and you're a healthcare worker and you have a strong belief against the uh, vaccine, you are protected by signing that form. And so you've got a workaround of sorts uh, in effect there that other states might, might look to as a model. Yeah, really criminal, I think, to especially at the time we're thinking about uh, engaging uh, in foreign wars and the things that are going on and what we're doing with the military. I mean, it costs money to train these people to get them prepared for what they're doing. And healthcare workers, it seems to me, what do they know that we don't that they're reluctant to take, to take the vaccine? Well, there are about 30% of healthcare workers the last time the numbers were done, which was, you know, it was a while ago now, but so I, but I don't know how much it's changed because even, you know, several months ago, the people who decided not to get it probably did so for a reason. So it was about 30% of healthcare workers the last time the numbers were published who didn't want the vaccine. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, there's a lot of regional variation with that, obviously, but that, that was the national number. And I think that the reason for that, you know, and, and that's, puzzling to some people who've only ever seen, you know, the positives and, you know, why would 30% of healthcare workers turn down something that's so perfect and wonderful? Uh, what I think is happening, Bob, is uh, you're, you're talking about healthcare workers who have been exposed to COVID many, many times. They've probably had it themselves at least once. And their risk calculus probably goes something like, I've already had it. I know what it's like. It's not uh, something that I'm afraid of. Uh, I've been exposed to it all along working, you know, throughout this whole thing. And I've seen a lot of adverse events in the hospital where I work as well, or, you know, I've, uh, you know, I have reason to believe uh, that there could be a risk to me. And so, you know, if you've already had COVID and you have very strong immunity from having already had it, and, you know, maybe you're not that scared about getting it again because it wasn't that bad when you got it the last time, uh, then the risk-benefit calculation, I think, changes a lot because yeah. you, you perceive very little benefit. And if you perceive any risk at all, maybe because you've had a few cardiac events in your hospital or whatever it is, you know, if you work in a hospital, even something that's rare, you know, you're probably going to see it. Because yeah. when it happens to someone, they come into the hospital. So I think that healthcare workers, the, you know, obviously 70% of them did get it, but the 30% who didn't, you know, they made a risk-benefit calculation that's personal to them. And to me, the idea that the president of the United States is going to say to healthcare workers, you cannot make your own medical decision. As a healthcare worker, you cannot make your own medical decision. I am going to override that and cause you to lose your job if you don't make the decision that I want you to make. Uh, you know, I think that's kind of outrageous for to do it to anyone, but especially to do it to a healthcare worker, I I find uh, you know truly offensive. Yeah. Uh, and so that was very disappointing that the Supreme Court allowed that. There is still ongoing litigation. Uh, the states that sued uh, have there are back in the district courts now in several of those cases. 
And, uh, you know, there are other arguments that they're making, but it's, it's, it's very uphill once the Supreme Court uh, has kind of already denied you a stay. So, uh, as I said, the best approach uh, maybe for more states to adopt uh, the, the kind of the checkbox opt-out that Florida has. Yeah, that's so interesting, Phil. Really appreciate your update on these uh, critical issues. And I want to re- refer our listeners to your website, American Commitment. AmericanCommitment.org is the website. Uh, Check it out. And again, addressing very practical issues on the margin that make a real difference for all Americans. Phil, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. My pleasure, Bob. Have a good one. You as well. Thank you. All right. Coming up, going to visit with uh, Cole Lyle. He is the executive director of Mission Roll Call. Very uh, interesting organization. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me, and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America and is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptimaEd.org. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in Space Architecture. Right now we have with us Cole Lyle. Is the, Cole is the uh, executive director of Mission Roll Call. Cole, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Absolutely, Bob. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, Cole. 
as I understand, as I recall from my, my notes, the, you're a Marine veteran and uh, served in the military. And uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about Mission Roll Call and what it's all about. Absolutely. Well, I, um, you're, you're correct. I joined the Marine Corps out of high school. Uh, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I kind of went through my, my own transition and, and uh, mental health issues. And um, myself was almost a veteran suicide statistic back in uh, 2014. Since that time, you know, I've advocated for veterans on the, uh, the national level to try to get them more access to service dogs, uh, worked in Congress, worked uh, in the VA, but ended up at Mission Roll Call because um, suicide prevention is one of my biggest passions uh, to try to reduce the number because, as, as you know, um, it's way too high. And Mission Roll Call's number one priority is to reduce the number of veterans uh, taking their lives every year. Uh, we do that uh, by advocating directly to members of Congress. Uh, if your members or listeners want to go to missionrollcall.org, um, they can sign up for texts and emails, and we regularly push out polls about policy issues that affect the veteran community. Uh, we convey that message, the unfiltered voice, uh, to lawmakers in D.C., policymakers at the Department of the VA and the White House to try to um, you know, promote policies that go towards the betterment of veterans generally, but the number one goal is to reduce the number of veterans committing suicide. Yeah, so uh, for our listeners that may not be aware, maybe you could just amplify a little bit about the uh, number of suicides, percentage of suicides based on the population of, of veterans and uh, the issue that we have. Right, so, you know, the VA's data uh, says that 17 veterans a day uh, commit suicide. That's a little over 6,000 veterans per year that commit suicide. In Florida, um, it, of that over 6,000, it's about 500, which represents 8% uh, of the total number of veteran suicides are right in Florida. Hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a huge problem and it's a difficult problem to solve because there's not just one reason why it's happening. So you gotta look, look at this from a holistic you know, perspective. And as I mentioned, I um, did some work actually, the, the bill that I wrote back in uh, 2015-16 uh, called the Pause Act uh, was actually sponsored by then Congressman Ron DeSantis um, and worked with him and the, organi uh, the organization Canines for Warriors down in Ponte Vedra uh, to get that across the finish line. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a huge problem. It's an urgent problem. Um, and, you know, Congress and the VA, the VA in particular, um, you know, they have a difficult time solving this problem. And sometimes it seems like there may be a lack of urgency, which is why I uh, think it's so crucial that states like Florida, uh, you know, pass bills urging Congress uh, to to tackle this issue more quickly. And, and apparently, we have uh, SM uh, three hundred two is cited in, in the notes that I have uh, that uh, they've already passed that bill. Uh, yeah, so they, uh, I believe they, the Senate, Florida Senate passed it yesterday. The House had already passed it a few days before. Ah. Um, and while, you know, it, it doesn't have much uh, in the way of enforcement, right, because the Florida legislature can't can't force Congress to do anything, the message is a great one. And if more states stepped up like uh, like Florida to urge them to do it, maybe, maybe they'd listen and tackle the issue a little faster. So what is it that we've asked uh, the federal government to do, the uh, Congress to do to address this issue? 
Well, so I, I, the ultimate uh, goal, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a messaging bill, right? I mean, it, uh, it just urges Washington and Congress to address the veteran suicide epidemic uh-huh. um, in a number of different ways, right? Um, and I think it's important because, as I mentioned, you know, uh, Congress and the VA, uh, they go into this back and forth mode where, uh, you know, Congress tries to implement something that, or excuse me, the VA tries to implement something that Congress passes. Um, you know, it takes a year or two for correct implementation. Congress isn't happy with the pace, um, so they pass other things, but then it starts the implementation mechanism over. Um, and it's, again, a very complicated issue because, you know, it may be acute financial stress. It may be relationship stress. Uh, it may be a service-connected mental health condition uh, that finally pushes veterans over the edge to make that irreversible decision. Yeah. Um, so it's just an inherently difficult problem to solve. But the VA has been reticent to embrace holistic approaches to mental health um, like service dogs or um, any other sort of non-traditional treatment. Yeah, no, service dogs. I've, I've met uh, uh, veterans who uh, have service dogs who've just benefited tremendously from uh, that opportunity. So uh, if you don't mind my asking a personal question, Cole, you'd mentioned that you were on the brink and considering uh, suicide yourself. Right. Uh, what What brought you back? What uh, What uh, What helped you uh, kind of make it through and, and be where you are today? Right. Well, you know, I like to joke that the worst parts of my life are in the congressional record, because when I was advocating for uh, the Pause Act, I testified about uh, about this exact question. Um, when I got out of the military, you know, a, a lot of people, men and women, join because they want that sense of camaraderie. They want that sense of serving a purpose higher than themselves. And, and I had that. I and mean, A lot of people have that. But you get out and that gets taken away from you mm. uh, pretty quickly. You lose your chain of command. You lose your you know, day to day or however long contact with the men and women you serve with. And you really have to re-find your purpose in the civilian world, um, dealing with transition, like trying to find a job. And at the time I didn't have a job, wasn't in school yet, was going through a pretty nasty divorce. Um, and, you know, I was just at a very low point, all also dealing with uh, some mental health challenges. So, um, you know, I was about a pound or two of trigger pull away from becoming one of the, at the time, 22 a day, um, and another Marine intervened. And the next day, I kind of just, I, I said, you know, instead of looking at this, like, you know, I, I have nothing, right? I'll look at this, like, I have the opportunity now to do anything. Uh-huh. And I did some uh, research, and I did some soul searching and praying and and decided that, um, you know, public service and trying to help other people that are going through the same thing that I was going through uh, was what I wanted to kind of devote my life to. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So I think it was a combination of a couple of things, right? I mean, I had to find a way to mitigate the symptoms. Um, yeah. So I looked for another option besides pills and therapy and found a service dog. I've got a German Shepherd. Her name's Kaya. She's great and adorable. Um, and she does really good work. Uh, but I also kind of found my sense of purpose again um, and my connection with uh, folks in my community. So well, I think that's super important. Yeah, well, I just really appreciate you sharing your story, Cole. So how can we support your efforts how, uh, the, in terms of uh, mission roll call? What, we, what can we do to help? 
Yeah, so as I mentioned, Mission Roll Call's uh, top priority is, is ending veteran suicide. The model by which we convey messages to Congress is unique in that veterans and veteran supporters, um, you know, you can go as a non-veteran to missionrollcall.org um, and opt in to our uh, text and emails. Uh, we regularly send out polls about issues that are affecting the veteran community. Some of it is veteran-centric, so if you're not a veteran, you're not necessarily going to be able to answer every poll, um, but we do push up polls regarding uh, policies concerning the veterans in the community. And our model is unique in that veterans and supporters don't necessarily have to go to an American Legion post or a VFW post and their, uh, you know, their opinions and thoughts on things kind of get filtered through the local level and then the state level and then the national level before it gets conveyed to members of Congress. So we take uh, you know, the overall mm. uh, results of these polls nationwide, and we can go state by state, um, and we convey them to members of Congress. So that's the best way. Just go to missionrollcall.org, sign up for text and emails. Um, you know, you can you can take a look at some of our content um, while you're there, uh, see what we've been doing, and uh, and ultimately, that's that's the best way to go about it. All right, Cole Lyle again, Executive Director of Mission Roll Call. You can go to missionrollcall.org, missionrollcall.org. Cole, I really appreciate your time here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture and author of so many different books. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcast Network. You have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Well, 
Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, uh, providing policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative. And you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. We have with us Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's also the author of many books. I've read most of them. Uh, his latest is a book that he wrote with uh, Buzz Aldrin. It's called Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Well, Bob, good morning, and thank you. Thank you, Professor. And uh, I should point out uh, you write a column for uh, Newsmax.com. It's called On Point. It comes out a couple of times a week, and I hope uh, you'll check out, go to Newsmax.com and check it out. His latest, his latest column is Hillary-funded Trump-Russia collusion false flag fraud. Uh, so interesting. I'm happy we can dig into this. Tell us about it, Professor. Yeah, this is a really big deal. Um, you know, we had... Uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, who I hear is making noises now to uh, maybe replace Biden and Kamala. Good luck with that as uh, next Democrat presidential candidate. But uh, when you look into this Durham, the Durham investigation, which kind of some of us wondered whether that was you know, going to go anywhere, but apparently John Durham is a very determined guy, and he's uh, he's clearly uh, working his way up the food chain on this scandal regarding Russian collusion, this uh, red herring that the Clinton administration, or the Clinton, or I should say, uh, uh, organization, the presidential organization, campaign organization, was was, was putting forth to uh, distract from her 30-some thousand emails that she couldn't explain for. But... Uh, it's, it's now Durham is, is of course she's uh, he's he's indicted uh, Sussman who was Clinton's campaign lawyer and and others and probably to come in the law firm uh, but but they had quite a deal going they were they had a group that was mining information not only from Trump Tower, but actually going right into the White House hmm. and, and the uh, executive office of the president and uh, data mining, you know, which is another way of saying spying on the president of the United States. And uh, this is, and, and it's and medical records. And this is really, really scary stuff to think that this could be happening at that echelon of government. And, Others are implicated uh, very significantly. The uh, Clinton's uh, direct, uh, intelligence advisor, security advisor, uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, played, apparently played a big role in pushing this narrative. And uh, you know, it was he was very much part of the. Uh, uh, Political narrative to get this Russian, so-called Russian collusion, which which fabricated uh, Trump's connections with the Alpha Bank in Russia. There was, they, you know, they seems like they created those those uh, communication links, 
and then and then broadcast them. And Sullivan had a big role in uh, pushing this campaign narrative right up to and even after mm -hmm. uh, Trump was elected. And they kept that narrative going. It uh, you know was destructive to the president, you know, Trump's uh, presidency for over three years. This is coming to light now, and it's just, to me, just absolutely uh, the most uh, staggering scandal. And you know, it sounds like a cliche to say it's greater than Watergate. I think, I think definitely it's greater than Watergate on yep. on any level. Absolutely, it's absolutely, absolutely stunning. Well, what's stunning to me, uh, Professor, is that the fact we're seeing uh, the mainstream media is not covering this at all. The only coverage that I saw was Hillary Clinton's denial, blaming it on Fox News and on... <laughs> oh, gee, I can't even say it with a straight face. Her denials are just uh, incredible. But it seems to me that uh, Durham, such a professional, and he's clearly, he's built his case. I think this could close in even on Hillary Rodden, Rodham Clinton... Well, I was curious. I was uh, really surprised. I guess we should never be surprised about the Clintons, but uh, uh, what Clinton said yesterday during the, you know, to the, you know, she was giving this talk in New York and basically saying, well, this is, you know, virtually saying, well, this is slanderous and uh, kind of a warning. I think she, you know, she's got a tremendous amount of moxie because you know, we're talking about, you know, Filings in a federal court right now. Yeah, and and uh, I don't think that uh, that's going to win her any friends uh, in the in these court cases, which are, as I say, looking up the food chain and uh, and at a time when, of course, she has such presidential ambitions, but she's also got some some big legal liabilities, uh, and uh, it sounds like Durham is the kind of guy who. Is really, really a strong guy. You know, it's, everybody's been concerned that he's been moving at glacial speed on this thing. But, but I, you know, you, you got to give him credit. I think he's building a heck of a case, and he could have let the time run out on this thing. He could have let the statute of limitations run out and so on. But no, I think he's, I think he's, uh, he's a real deal. He is the real deal, and that is a concern of mine also, that the statute of limitations could run out. If I'm not mistaken, what is it, five years? In fact, they actually could run out, uh, but I think— well, it was within months, yeah. It was within it was when, within months when he started filing some indictments, and uh, he was cognizant of that, and I think he's, he's building—understand, he's got the whole deep state against him. Yeah. And he—, and he and, and, and people can can wonder, and I think rightly so, whether okay, when when does the hammer drop on on, on all this stuff? And likely it won't be until the Democrats take these committees and in Congress, because there's been you got Jerry Nadler and you got Adam Schiff and you got these you got you know Ted Pelosi that won't bring that up before the the House and so on. So, but I, I think by the time uh, midterms, and I'm, I'm speaking a little bit. Uh, maybe too optimistically, but I think the the Republicans will take the House and and good prospect for the Senate as well. I think I think at that point the uh, the logjam will break, and I think all this stuff's going to come forward, and and uh, it all it all uh, basically 
runs up to the 2024 election. Hmm. And that's going to be an interesting to see who who the candidates are. I suspect it, it won't be Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. From your lips to God's ear, <laughs> Professor Larry Bell, uh, I encourage you to visit Newsmax.com and check out his column on point. Hillary funded Trump-Russia collusion false flag fraud. Also, Larry's book, Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. Professor, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And Bob, I enjoy it. Thank you. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Learned a lot. Uh, I hope you join us on Monday. We're going to visit with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Larry Reed is the president emeritus for the Foundation for Economic Education. And Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief, will be joining us as well. Always appreciate your comments here on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. Harden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day and weekend on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. Dot com.